Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor-in-chief of Modern Retail. And this week, we have Melanie Mazarin, the founder and CEO of Gia, uh, a non-alcoholic cocktail, beverage, whatever, like just a really interesting drink that is really tasty. I've had it many times. And I'm really excited to go into the non-alcoholic space, sort of the rise of new types of beverages and, um, and all that jazz. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, um, why don't you just give a little background, sort of like where were you before you started Gia? What was your your overall story into this? Of course. Um, well, I started Gia really out of a personal need because um, I haven't been drinking for a few years. And, you know, I'm someone who loves gathering, loves cooking, loves food. And I was really frustrated with the lack of options because I felt like every time I asked for something to drink I was offered you know coca-cola or red bull or something mm-hmm. that was really sweet that was really bad for me and that really would not complement the food that you know I was about to eat in a way that um you know was very flavor forward and I think most importantly you know in a way that would make me feel socially included I was really tired of being questioned and I thought We've changed our awareness so much in our plates. Um, You know, we require like transparency of ingredients and sourcing. And, you know, we want to know if something is like gluten-free and um, we just expect so much from the quality of our food. And then we are crushing April spritzes, which don't even have an ingredient label. And that just seemed to me like it was bound to change. And, um, you know, I, I asked some chefs, friends and you know, are people asking for non-alcoholic drinks? And they said, no, never. Um, But we do notice more people drink water. And I said, wow, I think that maybe they don't ask because they just know that there's no, there's nothing for them. There's nothing. If you want to go to a restaurant, you know, you get offered a mocktail, like you don't want a mocktail. I don't want a virgin something. I want something that is an adult drink. And so I I really took a chance, you know, on this idea um, because it was one of those things where there was no like, you know, market research um, to show me that um, it was an opportunity. And, and I really had a gut feeling that, you know, the supply would drive the demand. And, and thankfully, that's what we're seeing today. Wow. So d- did you have a background in food or sort of how did you go about devising the, the first product? For sure. So I had worked at Dig, which is a New York-based food startup, for three years. It was an incredible experience, but I didn't have any background developing a CPG brand um, or developing, you know, a brand at all. Um, I, I have to say, though, I did have very crystal clear vision for what I wanted Gia to look like, to feel like, to taste like, which I think was very lucky because it was the flavor that I was craving. It was the flavor of a traditional Italian Amaro, um, very um, high-end, you know, blend of ingredients. I wanted it to be very dry. I wanted it to be like, you know, the types of flavors that I expected if I was ordering a glass of wine before dinner, like appetite priming and like really the complexity of an alcoholic drink. But Um, without all of the nasties and without the hangover and so I I reached out to all my friends who worked in food and I asked them like how do I even go about making this product and um, I was introduced to a number of uh, food scientists and formulators and I found one who loved aperitifs and used to develop some beverages and also a lot of candy and he said okay let's do it. (laughs) So had you in like on your own attempted to make like a non-alcoholic aperitif before, or was this sort of your first time working with these food scientists? 
So actually growing up, my mom and my grandmother used to make a lot of drinks, but they had a lot of alcohol in them. <laughs> I, you know, so I think in our spirits, uh, we, you know, they made a lot of limoncello. I have these memories of my grandmother lived in the south of France and I spent every summer with her and, you know, her friend um, in the winter would have all these like citrus and she would go one afternoon and she would bring like boxes and boxes of them and then they would make limoncello and they would let it macerate until the beginning of the summer. And then the jars of limoncello, it was these massive jars and you have to use pure alcohol, which you can't find that easily. So my mom, that was my mom's job to ask all of her friends who had pharmacies to give them a little bottle of pure alcohol for the like batch of limoncello. And of course, they would be bribed with, you know, the final products in exchange. So we had these jars of limoncello that was so this beautiful, bright yellow. And um, they were like hourglass because I knew that at the end of the summer, they would be completely drunk. And so I have seen them, you know, play with ingredients and really honor the seasons. Like these lemons had to be untreated. They had to be um, as natural as possible. And, and so that was the memory. But developing a product I had not done myself because everything that you do with fresh ingredients is juice-based and is by default very sweet. And so it was really important to me to have something that was extract-based, have some oil in it, because you want, you know, that this kind of like dry grown-up taste will basically come from that. But um, it also required, you know, I, I like to say like I came in and I was like, I set all of the standards. I was like, we have to, you know, have a 0.0% drink and it has to have no preservative and it has to be non-alcoholic and it has to have like all these items like sourced from their place of origin. And it was kind of an impossible mission because if you have a drink that doesn't have alcohol to kind of stabilize it and you have all these really strong extracts. Um, and, you know, extracts are often made in tinctures, so they have some trace amount of alcohol in them. So it took us 55 weeks and I can't even, wow. you know, tell you how many like iterations of the product. But basically, we, we finally managed to make a product that would be stable, finding a factory that would be able to be food grade compliant so that no bacteria goes in it and is as clean as like a food or a juice processing facility but actually have the bottling line of like tall glass bottles, kind of like wine and um, making custom extracts with a, a proprietary CO2 process to CO2 extraction process so that it would be truly 0.0% and that, you know, a small amount of our customers who are like sober or can be triggered by any trace of alcohol can safely drink our product. Um, and yeah, it was a bit of a crazy mission. So when people say, Gia, yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. I, I want to say what's, what's inside that matters. Please, please have a taste <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a wild like ramp up. So a couple of questions is based on that. So first, what year did you first go to market? And second, when you were, you know, after you had the formulation that worked and it was bottled, how did you go about packaging it? And were you were you going to try and market it specifically to restaurants? Was that your idea that they would serve it as an option or was it were you all were you always were going to be direct to consumer from the beginning? So I started working on it early in 2019 and um, we launched it in June of 2020. The idea initially was to launch it with like a friends and family community launch in restaurants only <laughs> in April 2020. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> and so, you know, it was like, there are some great silver linings to having launched D2C, but it was never our initial strategy. And the reason for that is that one, my experience is in offline. I was building retail for Glossier. I've been working for a number of, you know, digitally native brands and like how to figure out like what that third dimension is. How do you build these great in-person experiences? Everything that Gia is about 
is gathering people more meaningfully. And so for me, having to launch it online, that was so sad, you know, but in the end, like it worked out because I think people were on their phones a lot and people without all the kind of social pressure really renegotiated their relationship to alcohol and gave us a try, which was really great. So all in all, like I wouldn't change anything, but the strategy was, you know, the best credibility that you can establish in the food world is if you are introduced to a product by a chef you really admire. So we had lined up all these amazing chef friends to support us, do tasting, get some feedback before launching the final product in retail and online. And um, it's it was completely different, but it worked out anyways. Wow. Can you tell me how you formed the overall brand storytelling and branding? Because you mentioned how you know, there, there. You were going to create a product that created the demand. So, how do you tell that story to people who might not necessarily know it? Um, and I feel like you have a very specific packaging in general. Like it's a, it's a very aesthetic, like piece of glass that has a, a beverage in it. So, how did you go about building that out, and what were you trying to convey? Very good question, um, and thank you for saying that. I really wanted Gia to not be another like pastel colored millennial brand. And that's, you know, someone who's coming from Glossier with the most respect for that. But I'm very inspired by brands that are cross-generational and that really stand the test of time. And I'm very inspired by um, hospitality signage, which is often not designed for the internet. It's very much an in real life product. And so with Gia, I, I feel like we have been conditioned for decades to think that alcohol is the life of the party. And so I didn't want a brand that was like a lesser version of an alcoholic brand. I felt like we had to be unapologetically loud and fun because we really wanted to compete with alcohol and not just compete, you know, on the market. Of course, there's like so many beverages, but really for the attention of the customer. And because I wanted people who partook in drinking Gia to feel like confident and included in the social occasion. And so we really wanted to kind of like upend all of the stigmas. And so we started with like a very surrealist inspirations, um, you know, really looking at like postmodern design from Italy and from France, I'm French and Italian. And, um, and uh, you know, all of this signage that was really feeling old, but new. So we partnered with a brand uh, in LA, a studio called Peron Rottinger. They've been working a lot in music and experiences. And so, you know, it was important to me that this reflect that. I like that they had that experience of building in-person experiences and they weren't just designing websites all the time. Like It's actually a very funny thing you mentioned because you you say how you wanted it to be, you know, the the aesthetic to, to, to sort of be eye-popping and different from others. I actually went to a friend's house a few months ago and she loves Gia and she had just bottles like stacked on her shelf. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I know that company. So it's working with people. She It's literally just in her living room as in, it was Thank like an you. art piece. <laughs> um, so how did you go about, like who did you work with in terms of brand storytelling? Because I feel like if you were doing DTC, you said you had chefs doing sort of last minute testing to make sure that the formulation worked out. When you launched, what was, was the plan to make it so that this would be with the chef world, with the spirits world, with other types of sort of creators? Who were you, who did you want to work with? Yes, I think we really wanted to work with chefs and we really wanted to work with, you know, people in hospitality. I think if we can have Gia be associated with a positive occasion, you know, I always go back to you're with a group of friends, you don't want to be drinking, you feel totally safe not drinking. And then someone says, okay, cheers. And you have your glass of water and everyone kind of stops 
because they don't want to be churned with water. And that's like always the moments that I think about. And I really wanted people to be able to cheer. So I want people to associate Gia with like a positive experience. And that's why we're really trying to, you know, show up in places offline where people will be able to celebrate together. Oh yeah, go into that. You're we're, we're offline. So now that you you had a DTC launch, but now things are much more open than they were, you know, two years ago. Are you focusing on a big B two B business? Are you trying to get into more restaurants? And how are you approaching that? For sure. So you know, right now we self distribute. So the channel that we have barely scratched the surface on is offline, and we'll be getting to that this year. I feel like we have, you know, we have seventy five percent of our business is still online, but we are on over a hundred menus in America, which is really exciting, given that we're eighteen months old with the many months of pandemic in that. Um, And so for us, it's like, you know, we had a lot of skeptics. So we're spending about 30 to 40% of our marketing resources, I would say people really reaching out to chef and, you know, sampling the product and doing tasting. And it contributes to about 4% of our revenue. So it's a really much, really a long-term play for us, but it's one that's like really important that we're really committed to is like, making gathering more inclusive. And I think the response is really starting to accelerate with restaurants reopening and maybe, you know, making updates to their menu. I think everyone was very reactive and for a while and using whatever they had in the bar. And now that people are placing orders again, I think they're willing to try new things and we're hearing some really, really positive feedback. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Do you have like a wish list or sort of how do you go about figuring out which restaurants are at the top of your list? Just walk me through that process. Well, at first, you know, it was a little bit of like which restaurants serve food that pairs really well with Gia. So all of the Italian and European restaurants, I think, are maybe better versed than Amaro's. Um, I think we have a really big uh, natural wine customer as well. So people that have uh, great natural wine lists will often um, will often gravitate towards Gia. And then, you know, now we're also really wanting to be in hotel mini bars and, and you know, maybe venues, concert venues are like huge for us. We would love to be a part of that. I feel like when you go to a concert, you just expect that there will be only club soda to drink. So, um, you know, I think we just, we want to be top of mind for people because we want them to know that it is an option to not imbibe if they don't want to and that there are other things on the market. Um, so that's that's kind of, you know, how we how we do things. Are you in any retail environments or not yet? Yes. So at Air One and with Foxtrot, we love them both. They were really early supporters. Um, you know, I think Foxtrot especially has like really changed our business outside of New York and L.A., which is um, we're so grateful for. And we are in Fairway um, as of two days ago, and we're slowly but surely, you know, growing. We are still self-distributing, so that's definitely a challenge. But um, now that, you know, it's 2022 and we're entering our second year of life, we are um, actually going to be onboarding a distributor to be in more places. But the way that we want to do, you know, the retail expansion is like we have been we have been very thoughtful and very intentional and I would say like a little bit risk averse because I don't want people to discover Gia on the shelf. I think that they should know about Gia and then see it and maybe convert then. But it's really important to me that like there is more storytelling than just a can lost in the middle of a lot of other cans on shelves or a bottle lost in the middle of a lot of other bottles that are very different. And so it might be confusing to people, you know, if you don't know what Gia is, it's a beautiful bottle, I think, and you want to gravitate towards it, but it's kind of confusing because it looks like alcohol, but it's not alcohol and, you know, it's bitter. So when you read bitter, you don't necessarily want to drink it. 
Um, so it's, um, I think it's important for us that people say like, oh yeah, I've heard about it. It's cool. It's non-alcoholic. It tastes like somewhere on the rocks and then grab a bottle. <laughs> that, that sort of leads perfectly into like what I wanted to ask. Foxtrot's a really interesting example because they have a bar. Am I, am I, is that right? Where they, you can have wine too. Um, did, did they serve Gia at the bar as well? And that sort of added to the overall experience for people to taste it? Um, so when we launched at Foxtrot's, I think they were delivery only because it was during the pandemic, but I'm not positive whether they serve alcohol or not, but some of their locations have a cafe where people could try the product. Um, we mainly launched in retail with them, but we did a lot of sampling opportunities, especially when we launched the cans, it just became much easier to be able to introduce people with a single serve form- format. So um, they've been super supportive and now they're expanding throughout the country, which is really great to see. Yeah, supposedly they're going to open in New York and I'm excited to see when that happens. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned how you want people to know the brand before they find it in a retail environment. What are your thoughts in terms of trying to do any form of storytelling so that people who come and see it understand what it is? Do you think that might be an impossible task in like the current stage or just where beverages are in a like, you know, Erewhon? I feel like you just see a big wall of like tonics and things like that. So yours is very different from what the others are. So how do you approach all of that? Yeah, and I think that's really part of the reason why we haven't expanded into retail so much in our early days. It was, well, one, you know, a big part of offline marketing is doing demos. Like when you see people really trying to like introduce your product to you, I always wonder who takes the like bite of ice cream, you know, at the supermarket. But it turns out it converts really well and a lot of people love to try things in person. So being able to launch in a supermarket without being able to do that didn't necessarily set us up for success. So we sort of waited for you know demos and tastings to be allowed again and then on top of that you know merchandising is so important like if you think of whole foods i think a lot of people have shopped at whole foods before where would you think of gear yeah, we don't really belong in the mixer aisle we would be yeah. way too expensive we don't really belong in the beer aisle that would be super confusing i think maybe if you think of like italian products like we could maybe be an item on the table in the cheese aisle but cheese aisle and crackers aisle is like a very low velocity aisle. So you don't really want to launch your product there. People don't necessarily know where to find you. So it's really important actually that there is more competition so that we can together, you know, go to a supermarket and say, okay, you need like a non-alcoholic aisle. And that's what a lot of, you know, these these companies that we work with have been doing, Foxtrot, Erwan, they have like a section for non-alcoholic beverages they're um, a little bit earlier to market to merchandising and that ensures success on both ends. And so that's why we're sort of waiting for retailers to catch on. And it's really exciting now to see that there's even like non-alcoholic liquor stores, like, you know, shout out like Spirited Away and Boisson, these stores in New York that are, you know, building like shelves and shelves of products and are so educated on every single one of them. It's like, you know, that you can go and find gear there and you know that you'll be helped in terms of like flavor profile and functional benefits, if any, and and whatnot. Just sort of going off of that, like there's been a lot of, I don't want to say fervor, but like there's been a lot of velocity, I think you said earlier, with the non-alcoholic space. And there's been a lot of press and there are the launches of these non-alcoholic stores. Do you like, do you think that is going to continue gaining steam? Are you worried that it might be flatlining in terms of maybe even like press mentions of it? What do you think is happening in terms of the overall space of of non-alcoholic beverages as it, as it fits into sort of the cocktail framework? Or or do you think that there is an actual shift that's that's slowly happening that will only get bigger from here? This is not just wishful thinking, but I do believe there is a shift. Um, I started feeling a shift when I started Gia because I was always 
opting out, you know, at dinner. And I was always being called like boring or like if I was with strangers, you know, them clearly wondering if like I had an alcohol problem or if I was pregnant and whatnot. And I started to see, you know, a few years in that if I opted out with my friends at dinner, often someone would follow and say, you're not drinking. Okay. I'm going to stick to water as well. And I realized Mm -hmm. like, wow, it's like I'm giving them permission to be um, opting out. And I started to see the shift. Obviously, that was like New York City 2019. So um, a lot has changed since. And I'm sure it was still very different in cities outside of New York. But now I'm seeing it everywhere. I feel like the conversation around sobriety with a small S has really opened up. So the rise of the sober curious movement of whatever label we assign to it, like I think we're slowly but surely gravitating towards like the default being not drinking and then on occasion drinking more intentionally because I, I I do think people especially with the pandemic have even more of an understanding of what makes them feel good and feel bad and I think we all understand at this point that like alcohol is poison it's fine there's a lot of things that are poison like sugar I love sugar you know carbs love carbs um but I think then we just know and we're just better able to making informed decisions what are your thoughts on, or like product expansion? How are you going about that? Yeah, give me sort of like how how you are going to sort of unroll more products or if you are. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's really hard balancing um, building novelty and creating a forever brand. And so, you know, I think if I think about my dream for Gia, I would love Gia to be um, a product that people know in many countries and people feel comfortable drinking in many different cultures. But I don't want Gia to have like, 15 different flavors that are all like watered down and, you know, try to appeal to everyone. I think a few um, somewhat polarizing flavors where, you know, anyone will find one that they really love is really important to us. Like, you know, only about 25% of people like bitter. So it was a bit of a risk to make a bitter drink. But the people who love Gia, love Gia. We have like an incredible retention rate and, you know, we just get like all this amazing feedback every day from people. So so I know that it was right to do it. We're working on a few new flavors. Like, to be honest, some of them we've been working on for over two years and they're just not ready. They're just really hard to develop. Like we just have really strong standards for really high standards for the type of product development. But over the holidays, we launched um, which <laughs> the tagline for it is another delicious product no one can pronounce. And that was a limited edition. <laughs> that was like a, an alternative to Nutella. So the way that we started the product development process is always about the occasion. Like, and I was going back to, you know, hot summer memories. It's like, okay, well, what about after dinner? What happens after dinner? And for me, it was like, you know, the adults would play cards and they would have some chocolates um, and they would kind of like chat until like the wee hours in the morning and then, you know, would wake up and have like crepes with Nutella on them. Um, and so we went back to that and thinking, wow, Nutella is so environmentally damaging. It's full of palm oil. It's like so delicious, but it's so bad for you. And so we said, like, what about if for the holidays we made um, a better version of Nutella? So we made our Gianduia, and I think people were surprised. Like, they wondered if maybe I lost the plot along the way. Um, but the response from people who tried it was so positive that it's really expanded my horizon. It's like, we don't need to limit ourselves to beverages. There are so many products. There are so many products that, you know, are creating delightful moments and deserve to be made better. So if we really go back to this set of standards as our ultimate filter uh, and this like these joyful, cheerful experiences um, through the filter, like I think that's the opportunities are really endless. 
So that's super interesting. So both of those products, like Gia and the other one, and I apologize for not saying it, <laughs> um, uh, they're both like like beautiful cultural moments that are usually like very European, I would say. Like I feel like like Nutella is very important in, in France as our aperitif. So are you like have you been thinking about inter international expansion? Are you are you only in the US right now or sort of how are you thinking about that? So we're only in the US right now, but of course it would be my dream to launch Kia in France. You know, I think the reality is we're a team of six people right now. We have to stay really focused. Um, exporting it would make the product really expensive in a country where the alternative is drinking wine and wine is much cheaper. So I'm always thinking in terms of what consumer decision people make. And if they're choosing between a bottle of wine, which is 12 euros there, and a bottle of Gia that would be priced at like 40, it wouldn't make sense. So basically for us to launch Gia in France, we would need to find a factory and make it there. Uh, the ingredients are local, so that would be easier, but it's probably not going to happen for another year, year and a half. Um, I also think there's an enormous opportunity in the Middle East, and we've been getting a lot of demand from there. We're just really wanting to be thoughtful and launch a country with the community with the right education like it's really important otherwise you kind of you know you can put your product on a shelf and it's not going to move so I think we're really trying to penetrate the U.S. market right now get better brand awareness um, you know I think a lot of founders will relate to this but with COVID supply building supply chain and rebuilding supply chain has been tremendously difficult and I'm really focused on building a healthy business before um, we stretch ourselves too thin. So speaking of just healthy supply chain, can you just give me a sort of sense for like the growth over the last two years and where you th what you think is going to happen for, for this year to come in terms of, you know, like how you're finding people, like like all that stuff? For sure. I mean, you know, we are sort of at this stage where we um, have, you know, almost tripled since last year and we have a lot of demand for on-premise and off-premise, meaning retail, which is, this is a less linear growth path, but you sort of open a region and suddenly you're shipping the product in like pallets, you know? And for us, it's like, we constantly have inventory risk. There's a global, like, there's a global shortage of aluminum. There is, um, you know, transportation fees, both domestically and internationally that have risen like eight to 12 times in the past 18 months. So everything has sort of like become more expensive and we are just being really thoughtful and trying to basically build redundancy with every single vendor that we can. Um, so that we, you know, if one vendor cancels an order because they can't keep up for no other reason than, you know, there's nothing malicious. It's like our caps, are like the bane of my existence right now, for instance, because <laughs> cork is not, cork is only sourceable in Portugal, I believe. And yeah. they get brought in from Portugal to Mexico, but because shipping costs have risen and because the ports are clogged, um, no one can get the cork in time. So their biggest client is Diageo. Everyone's biggest client is always Diageo, which is really annoying too. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're like, they have a contract with us. They love us, but they just can't, they don't have enough cork to, supply both Diageo and all of the smaller brands. And so, you know, we're having to find other vendors so that we have redundancy. So it feels a little bit like rebuilding the company on year two, but um, hopefully this eases up over the next year and a half and we'll be able to do more fun things with the same resources. I just want to go back just for one second to talk about non-alcoholic culture because uh, I just want to ask one thing, which is we're in dry January right now, which is sort of a buzzwordy thing that a lot of places write like, blog posts about. Do you think it holds the same weight this year, given that there is 
more of a, a non-alcoholic culture. And it's like, as you were saying, it's much more acceptable to, to pass on drinking than it, than it was in years past. Or do you like, what are your thoughts in terms of it as a marketing plan, uh, as a brand that sort of is trying to tap into sobriety and, and sober culture? Yeah, I think actually more than ever. I think it feels like dry January is a bit of a trend because we're in big cities. But what we're seeing is that dry January almost doubles every year because it reaches new markets. I think, you know, as much as I don't love this idea of cutting something out for a month and then on February 1st, you know, like binge drinking again, I think dry January is really good because it gives people the shield of an excuse to exp- to to kind of get the confidence to not be drinking in um, places where there still might be social pressure to be drinking on any given night and saying, oh, I'm doing dry January. It makes it like a fun challenge. It involves people in your success. So it's kind of like the word sober curious is, of course, it feels really trendy because you've been hearing it for a few years, but it actually is a very protective term for a lot of people that you know, maybe exploring their relationship to alcohol without wanting to define like to have a too defining of a label assigned to them. Got it. Well, we're almost running out of time, but I wanted to ask you sort of looking ahead where, what is your primary focus in terms of overall expansion growth? Are there any channels? Are you trying to double down on direct sales or, you know, getting these restaurant clients sort of what what are you, what's, what is your big thinking right now? All of the above. So my (laughs) Big thinking, you know, I'm definitely someone who's always focused on expansion, but I think, you know, the next few months for us are going to be really rebuilding the foundation for the company so that we make sure there's no inventory risk this year. Uh, That's really important. We launched subscription for a spritz today, uh, which is really exciting for us because we secured enough cans to be able to guarantee that we'll be able to keep people fueled. So that launched this morning. And um, um, we're focusing on the U.S. market across channels. So we're scaling the DTC channel and we're testing a lot of different things offline. Building our team, uh, we're only six people right now and um, we need a few more. So uh, really wanting to build like a strong culture and bring people back into a fun office. I'm currently sitting in the closet of what will be our future office and um, and um, and designing it. So um, so that's those are all parties. You know, it's, I think helping people develop into managers as we're having you know reporting structure now and it's not completely flat. It's really exciting things and hopefully we'll launch you know Canada in the next year. Um, but we want to do it well. So we'll we'll want to make sure that we can actually go there and meet our community. And I think with the borders like opening and closing, it's been a little challenging. All right. Well, Melanie, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Have a nice day. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.